Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. We are in the second. There's three sections in chapter 40. The first covers the first 11 verses. Now we're in verses 12 through 26. Now I'll only read a few to begin. But you remember the context is a prophecy of Isaiah looking ahead to the time when God's people would be taken exile to Babylon. Babylon was rising as a power, starting to encroach upon Assyria's territory, and it was clear that the Babylonians would be the power in the world soon enough. But God had just delivered Judah from the Assyrians. Nevertheless, it was the plan of God for Judah to fall under Babylon, not to be annihilated as a people. God would keep his covenant promises in order to bring Messiah from Judah. But they would undergo a discipline under the hand of God, and they would undergo difficulty and doubt, no doubt, when they were in exile. So the words here are devised to help the people of God endure difficulty, especially when they're tempted to stop trusting God, start wondering about his promises, uh, start doubting that God really will do what he said he would do. Now, does that relate to any of us? I mean, this is so timeless. Uh, One of the beauties of Scripture is the way it speaks to an original audience, but then has a lasting impact and application for all the people of God, as we understand it correctly. We have the vantage point of looking through history to see this message and know how Christ came to fulfill uh, the servant that is promised in Isaiah. But we can look at this text and realize as believers today that we struggle with doubt. And there is something that's making you anxious right now. It could be a new job or the lack of a job. It could be you're going to college, you started a new school year. It could be a relationship that's in trouble or a child who's wayward. It could be something that's making some health issue that has come up in your life. And it's, it's pressing you and you might be struggling with doubt about God and his promises. Well, this passage that I will read a portion of now is meant to help doubting believers. And it extends into the passage we'll look at next week as well. But now here, as I read, I'll read verses 12 down to verse 18. The very word of the Holy One. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult, and whom made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. O Lord, there are none greater than you. There are none that in any way compare to you, the timeless, infinite, entirely sovereign God of all creation. We are here to worship you and to hear from you. 
by the ministry of your spirit, open our minds and our hearts to understand and be changed by your holy word. Give us your heavenly food so that we might be strengthened in our faith and encouraged to obedience. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now have before you the insert with all the verses. It divides into four sections that I'll line out for you as we walk through the passage together. There are few temptations greater for Christians than doubt. Doubting our God, doubting his promises, doubting his presence, doubting his faithfulness. It creeps into our minds. Even the the most mature Christians will struggle at times with doubting. God, what you said, is it true for me? Will it really come to pass? Will you really be faithful to this? Are you really there? And that's exactly what was plaguing uh, the people who would have received this message for the first time and then through the centuries. Every believer can relate at some point with this reality of struggling with doubt. Even though God has brought us as far as he has brought us, we still struggle with doubt. It reminds me of uh, what I saw not too long ago when I took my daughter to the pool. There was a man with a son, a young son, who kept jumping into his arms. He was in the kind of the medium depth of the pool, but it was way too deep for the child to be in alone. So he would jump into his father's arms, his father would catch him and then kind of put him back to the side. He'd crawl out and do this over and over and over. I mean over and over again. And every time, the child would be really scared. And I'm watching this happen. And, Dad, will you catch me? Will you catch me? And I almost want to stand up. Kid, he caught you every time. He's not going to ever drop you, okay? It's funny, but we still, God, will you catch us? Will you catch us? He's never dropped us. He's never once failed in any promise he has ever made. Yet we struggle with doubt over and over again when something else new arises. Well, the answer to our doubts starts in these passages. It'll finish in the, in the rest of chapter 40. But I want you to notice where it starts. Now, sometimes we Reformed people get a knock for how often we spend time on the sovereignty of God. Well, this is Isaiah, the prophet, from God, speaking for God, responding to the thing you've got to know in order to not doubt, in order to be relieved of your doubts. There's a starting point for this. And it comes up over and over and over again in Scripture. And this is the foundation for having trust in God. Uh, It's the foundation for a security, really for understanding the way the world works or accepting what happens. A few things could be more important. Now, this passage covers a few things. I can't cover them all. I mean, it covers the eternality of God, the invincibility of God, the immensity of God, the creatorship of God, the power of God the sovereignty of God, the rulership of God, the wisdom of God, the otherness of God, I decided I'm going to put this all in one attribute. It's the greatness of God. We're going to hear about the greatness of God as the response to our doubt. We have to understand this first, and this will help with the rest of God's explanations or the way he relieves our fears. It starts with an understanding of the greatness of our God, and there is none greater. Now, to summarize... Is God able, we might ask? Will he keep his promise? In one of his letters to Erasmus, I read in a commentary that Luther said to Erasmus, your thoughts of God are too human. I think that's what plagues us so often. A.W. Pink writes two really helpful books on this topic. One is on the attributes of God, where he lines out every attribute the Bible speaks of, the ones I mentioned. The other one is all about the sovereignty of God. That 
aspect of who God is. Listen to what he says, and he's writing in the 1950s. The God of this modern age no more resembles the supreme sovereign of holy writ than does the dim flickering of a candle, the glory of the midday sun. The God who is now talked about in the average pulpit spoken of in the ordinary Sunday school, mentioned in much of the religious literature of the day, and preached in most of the so-called Bible conferences, is the figment of human imagination, an invention of maudlin sentimentality. The heathen outside the pale of Christendom form gods out of wood and stone, while the millions of heathen inside of Christendom manufacture a god out of their own carnal mind. In reality, they are but atheists, for there is no other possible alternative between an absolutely supreme god and no god at all. So the god of the Bible is the sovereign god. He's the great god, and there are none greater. And this is the beginning point for our struggle with doubt, understanding this point first. This is where Isaiah goes to a people who needed this kind of comfort, similar to the comfort we need. When we understand who our God is and what he can do, we can be sure of his ability to fulfill his promises and keep us safe in him. You remember how verse 11 ended before we came to this verse 12. The promise is that God, like a shepherd, will hold us in his arms. He will save us, he will nurture us, and he will protect us. That's the picture that ends in verse 11. So someone might say, but God, is it true? Will you really do this? And that's how he begins this diatribe, bookended on how he's the sovereign creator of his greatness that helps us know, yes, he can keep what he promises in the first 11 verses and everywhere else because he is great. First, your God is the sole creator of all things. This is why you can trust him. Look at verse 12. 12 to 17 is this depiction of God, the creator of all things. This is the fundamental point of all knowledge. We have to recognize that God is the creator. This is where most people get off the tracks immediately in their worldview, their understanding of things. If you don't understand that God created all things, you won't go to God to understand the world he created. And you'll try to devise something, and you end up bumbling around. And in your wisdom, you actually become a fool. We'll come to that in a moment. Verse 12, though, he's speaking to a people who are struggling with doubt. Now, part of why they're struggling with doubt is they're in Babylon. They're seeing a different system, a different world system around them. And he says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? and closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. He's talking about how, in a sense, easy it was for God to create. It would be so difficult for us to conceive of weighing the mountains. It would be so difficult for us to conceive how you can measure the heavens, which keep coming at you over and over. I mean, how could a man conceive of it? But from God, it was just he just spanned it out, measured it, and he did it. I mean, just... in the hollow of his hand, just like you put a little bit of water in it, God had all the waters, and it's figurative, of course, but it shows you his size, his immensity compared to us. He can take all the waters of earth and put them in the hollow of his hand. There's a lot of water on earth. There are five oceans, 304 million lakes, 165 major rivers that go through all the different continents. It's said of rivers and water, rivers are the cradles of civilization. 
all the major civilizations such as Mesopotamia, Indus Valley, the Egyptian and Chinese civilizations had developed on the banks of rivers. The water that comes from the oceans, it goes to the lakes, it goes to the rivers. It's the cradle of civilization and God could take all of it, which if you were to add up its volume would be over 332 million cubic miles of water. That's 96 or 71% of the earth's surface. And all of that which we depend on to live, us little people, God could take and put in the hollow of his hand. That God will keep his promises. Because he can keep his promises. Like no other. Verse 13, who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him counsel. This is directly taken from the creation account itself when God uh, is said, is the spirit of the Lord The spirit of Yahweh hovers over the face of the deep, and he creates. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Now a series of rhetoricals. What person could possibly figure God out? What person could offer something to God that God doesn't already know? Where did the person get it? Verse 14, whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who could possibly give God advice? Now, this is an interesting play that comes from the history. The Babylonians had a system of gods, as did the Assyrians and the Canaanites as well, all people who lived in this land prior to the people of God coming in. They had a series of gods, not one god, but series of gods. There was one who created and would consult with the other gods about how he would create. And so there's definitely uh, a picturing of this as you read the prophets say, whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Alec Moyer, who writes a great commentary, said in reference to this, in both Babylonian and Canaanite creation stories, the creator must overcome opposing forces before the way opens for the work of creation. To the contrary, the Old Testament not only tells the story of creation in a way that demands a monotheistic doctrine of God, there's only one God, but also uses the concept of creation to point to the fact there is only one God. He was alone for the work of creation and is also alone in the wisdom needed for the work. No one else, none greater. He's the one who creates it all. No one ever showed God something that he didn't already know. No one ever offered consultation or advice to God. No one ever imparted understanding to God. No one has defined justice for God. No one has taught God anything, or did, nor did anyone help God in any way understand anything. All things are beholding to him. All things owe their existence to him. I love what we teach our children in the, the child, uh, children's catechism when they're just real young, can't read yet usually. How wise? What's the first thing you want to say to them? Who made you? God did. What else did God make? God made all things. Why did God make you in all things? For his own glory. I know multiple PhDs that are still flopping around in life because they don't understand this but I know six-year-olds that grasp this. What a difference in foundational worldview. So the whole doctrine of the greatness of God is founded upon the creation of God and he being the creator. In fact, this text book sends, it starts with the creation being from God, the the sole creator, and it ends that way. But there's more in between that helps us with our doubt. But he, he puts things into scale for us very vividly. Verse 15, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, And are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Now, he's not diminishing the value of people who are created in the image of God. That's not the point. He's just, again, 
laying out the fact that man is crea- God has created everything. Man's a creation, one of billions and billions and billions and billions of creations. And really, in the scale of God, the immensity of God, very small. I mean, a drop in the bucket, proverbially. And then also, the dust on a scale. Imagine a merchant who's doing regular uh, selling, and he's weighing stuff. And there might be a, 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 a slight dusting on the scale. He's not going to take time to clean the scale every time. It's just insignificant. It's not weighing it down. It's not causing anyone money one way or the other. That's the kind of dust in the scale we are. It's compared to God and his word. Recognize that. If we understand God's a creator, we're the creation, that's a beginning point to being relieved of our doubts when we start to follow through to his promises. Then it says something that would have been humbling. People who were giving sacrifices to God, even people who thought of themselves as faithful, would bring regular sacrifices. But it says in verse 16, just to put it into human terms, Understand that the sacrifices are given value only as God places value on it. If it were just man trying to pay God something back or show God how big they think God is, verse 16 really humbles us. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. What does this mean? The most uh, forested area known in that part, of the, that part of the world was Lebanon, the cedars of Lebanon you've heard. Uh, They were shipped to various parts of the world to build things, great things. And the land was such that it held livestock plentifully. So imagine if you cut down every tree in Lebanon and made a huge pile and then killed every animal in Lebanon and laid it on top of it for a sacrifice, it would not suffice. It would not even touch offering something worthy to God. Verse 17 All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing. There is no challenge or limitation to the creator. So the passage about relieving God's people's doubts starts with God as creator. When we understand who our God is and what he can do, we can be sure of his ability to fulfill his promises and keep us safe. Your God is the creator of all things. When we understand this, the world begins to make sense and we start to understand who God is and what our relationship is with him. I don't want to make all the problems of the world very simple because I know they're complex, but they do come to a point. If you don't think God created it all, it changes everything above it. It really messes stuff up. And how's that working for the world in general? Well, if man does not acknowledge God as creator, the inevitable outcome is what comes next in the text. If you look at verse 18, your God, yes, is the creator of all things, but your God is the true and the living God, not a dead God of idolaters. Uh, If you don't believe God's the creator, then you start to make stuff to be God, to fill that void you can't explain, and it becomes idolatry. And in this time, literal idols carved out of things with gold put on or whatever someone could afford. That's what they made into their idols. Today we have other things. Uh, We have the material objects we worship, the substances we want, uh, the relationships we want, uh, the power, the prestige, these things that we idolize, that we put in the place of God. We always struggle with idolatry. And it comes back to forgetting, at a base level, who is the creator and who is creation, what is creation. But look at verse 18. He draws out this image that's very vivid even to us as we understand this background. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? I mean, obviously, the, the answer is going to be that you can't compare. 
But the problem is they're living in Babylon where there are idols all around them. They were constantly falling prey to idolatry when they were independent. An idol, it says in verse 19, honestly, is that what you say is going to compare to God? A craftsman casts it. I mean, first, right off the bat, there's a person who's got to make this thing. And a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver and chain. So a craftsman makes it, then someone else has to come along and add to it. I mean, the thing takes a bunch of people to make. God warns the people of God uh, when he calls them out of Egypt, another place of many idols, something they'd seen for many, many years. When he calls them to Mount Sinai, he says to them very vividly, right as he begins his Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before you, before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. What a vivid description of the right God has to command us not to commit to idolatry. He's a creator of all things. He has a right to be a jealous God because nothing that you can see has not been created by him. And why should we give any of that devotion? Only he deserves it. But the problem is what happens in mankind when the first acknowledgement is not realized that God is a creator. We have the phenomena that's described by Paul in Romans. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They knew there was a God. Uh, People get that there's something else. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Knowing our tendency to trust in the wrong things, we are reminded of our God as he is compared to idols. Verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? Look at verse 20. We have the the normal picture of a craftsman making this idol, but what about a person who just doesn't have enough money to make a good idol? He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. I mean, how silly it is that man makes an idol to worship. An idol that cannot move. I mean, think of the picture of this. It's purposely rendered actionless. What a worthless God it is. Moyer says again very wisely, idols may look magnificent, venerable, and mysterious. They may excite a sense of awe, but there is nothing there except materials. No ability but human ability, no innate resources but those of earth. Idolatry is as old as sin. The first sin based on the idol of self-worship. I am God, or want to be like God. And any time we unwittingly or wittingly substitute God with something else, that something else is an idol. I love what uh, John Piper wrote many years ago that has come back in my thinking over and over over the years when he describes idolatry, how it looks today. What's an idol? Well, it's the thing, Piper says. It's the thing loved or the person loved more than God, wanted more than God, desired more than God, treasured more than God, enjoyed more than God, 
It could be a girlfriend. It could be good grades. It could be the approval of other people. It could be success in business. It could be sexual stimulation. It could be a hobby or a musical group that you're following or a sport team that you are following or an immaculate yard. And he lists a whole bunch of things that could be idols. But idols are not living. Idols, idols are our own creation. Many of our doubts come from our trust in created things. You see, when we understand who our God is and what he can do, we can be sure of his ability to fulfill his promises and keep us safe. Your God is the sole creator of all things. Your God is the true and living God, not a dead idol. And also, look at verse 21. Your God is supreme in rule and authority. If he's the creator and he's the only true and living God, it stands to reason that he is the supreme one. He doesn't then get to this place and then share rulership with others, no matter how it looks on the surface. The reality is, is he is the supreme sovereign one. Verse 21, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? In other words, are you listening to the Babylonians and the culture, or do you know what has always been said and revealed about me, God says? It is he, God, who sits above the circle of the earth, verse 22. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Who brings princes to nothing. It makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Wait a minute, I thought the sovereign was, was Cyrus of Babylon or Sennacherib of Assyria or the pharaoh of Egypt or the president of the United States or the president over here or the king over there. No, that's not really who's in charge. You just think it's that way if you're looking with earthly eyes when you forget who the creator is. It's he who sits above the circle of earth And to him, the inhabitants look like grasshoppers. The ones you're scared of, grasshoppers. I know there's an unusual level of anxiety in our country about the upcoming presidential election. There are good reasons for that on a temporary basis for sure. But let no believer, no believer be truly shaken. Because it's God who puts people on the throne and takes them off. In fact, this is exactly what we're reminded of in verse 24. Scarcely are they planted, rulers, kings, presidents. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. This is a repetitive theme that God reminds his people because his people struggle with it. He tells, he tells us through King David, king himself, the truth about himself. Psalm twenty two twenty eight. for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Not you, David. It's God who rules over. Later, David writes in Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. And later, to Daniel, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does God according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? A.W. Pink helps us again with this perspective about the sovereignty of God, which is 
a way of helping relieve our doubts. What do we mean by the sovereignty of God? Pink writes, we mean the supremacy of God, the kingship of God, the godhood of God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that God is God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the most high, doing according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, so that none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and on earth, so that none can defeat his counsels, thwart his purpose, or resist his will. To say that God is sovereign, Pink says, is to declare that he is the governor among the nations, setting up kingdoms, overthrowing empires, determining the course of dynasties as pleaseth him best. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the only potentate, the king of kings and the lord of lords. Such is the God of the Bible. And that's the only God that can help you. And so when you doubt, knowing who God really is will help you with that doubt. Nothing else will. There's a fourth division in this text I want you to see. Your God is the sole creator of all things. Your God is the true and living God. Your God is the supreme ruler, the sovereign one. And finally, your God is incomparably great. Incomparably great. Remember back at verse 18, it said, To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? Now look at verse 25. It's like a bookend, again, in the other part of the bottom part of this middle section of chapter 40. To whom then will you compare me, God says, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Don't miss that last statement. Says the Holy One. The Holy One is the killing blow to any thought of comparison with another, so says Oswald. This passage is set up with the bookends of God as a creator. Verse 26, it says, lift up your eyes on high and see. What is he saying? The Babylonians were known for their astrology. They worshiped the stars. They followed the stars. In fact, this is the region of the world from which the Magi come. It becomes Persia later. Same kind of religious philosophy, astrology. And it's, it's a neat feature of biblical revelation that the Magi who worshiped the stars would come to worship Christ. The one who put the stars up there. And that's what he says. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? You watch the Babylonians worshiping. Well, who made them? Verse 26, the second part. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, no one is missing. We cannot fathom the immensity of the universe. We cannot, we cannot fathom it. Millions and millions, if not billions of billions of galaxies, let alone stars. And the stars themselves, you know, we have as many of them as we could possibly name, and we're only into the thousands. There are others identified, they're sure out there, but they can't, you know, they first put like uh, a weird X206, that star. And the first person who picks it gets a name, it usually after their kid or something. There's Lucille. Such a small book makes up all that we know, yet we know the immensity of it. And God, in particular, has created all these stars and laid them out, and I think purposely makes billions and billions of them to constantly keep us in our place. And there will be stars that no one will ever gaze upon, but their very creation does what its purpose is, and that's to glorify God. It doesn't, 
We don't need to see it to give it value. Lift up your eyes, he says to the Babylonians. He says to us, if we doubt God, lift up your eyes. Look at everything. He's the one who numbered them. Not one's missing. He knows every one particular. And it's by the greatness of his might that he does this. And only God is really great. What do we call great? The Great Wall of China? I mean, it's great. By our standards, it's great. The Great Pyramids? Yes, absolutely great. No question. Great like God, though? No. The great sand dunes in Colorado. They're more the weird sand dunes. I mean, why are they there? I mean, it's such a strange place for them to be. But I can climb to the tallest one. It can't be that great. They're the great lakes. How about people who call themselves great? Alexander the Great. You're laughing at Alexander the Great. That's That's harsh. Muhammad Ali said he was the greatest. Interesting for a Muslim who says only God is great. He said he was the greatest. The great one, supposed to be a hockey player. But who's really great? In a commonly told story, but worth mentioning again here, we have illustrated who is great. In 1715, King Louis XIV of France died after a reign of 72 years. That's an amazing span, especially for that time frame. He had called himself the great. He was the monarch who made the famous statement, I am the state. His court was the most magnificent in Europe as it's described. And his funeral matched that level of spectacular. As his body laid in state in the cathedral, it was in a golden coffin. Orders were given that the cathedral should be then dimly lit as everybody was there for the funeral, almost pitch black, with just a candle on top of the golden coffin to dramatize his greatness. Then the bishop began to speak, and he slowly reached down, and he snuffed the candle out, and he said, only God is great. When the temple was being built, this great prayer was uttered to remind the people of God, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above, over, above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Our God, your God, is incomparably great. And this is why you can trust him with your relationships, with your family, with your school, with your friends, with our world, because he's great. Your God is able to fulfill his promises and keep you safe. And in particular, what did he say in verse 11? It's so beautiful. That he would pick us up like little lambs, and he would hold us, and he would protect us. He would keep us safe. He promised that. And why do we know his promise is true? Because he is the creator of all things. Because he is the true and living God. Because he is the supreme one, the sovereign one. Nobody, nobody thwarts God's will and his plan. Because God is incomparably great. There is none greater, my brothers and my sisters. Let's pray.
Lord, I pray the words of the psalmist, as they are so appropriate for us this morning. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach us your way, O Lord, that we may walk in your truth. 